morning I'll ask if you will to turn your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. You know, I, I feel like one of the things that God has wanted to accomplish through this rather lengthy series, expositional series in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe that we're living in the end times. I, I really sense in my spirit that it won't be long and the King of glory will come in glory. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. If it was today, I want to be ready. I want to that I want to recognize him. I want to know him exactly as he is. And folks, the only way to truly recognize the Son of God, the King of Kings, is to be in the Word of God. And I'm talking about digging deep into the Word of God. There are so many churches out there that are preaching a foreign Jesus. Preaching a foreign Jesus. I mean, what they're teaching about Jesus shouldn't compare to what the scriptures really say. All kinds of weird notions being taught and promoted out there about who Jesus is and what he stands for. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one way to know Jesus, and that is to dig into the inerrant word of God. And I believe that we've been walking painstakingly, carefully, verse by verse in these cases, and walking through the Gospel of Matthew. God is taking this sacred book, his word, and he's revealing to you these things about our Savior that it's important for you and I to know. We need to know him like we have never known him. And know him intimately and certainly by faith as your Lord and Savior. And I trust if you're here today and you haven't come to a point of perfecting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, oh dear friend, don't put that decision off. Don't make the erroneous assumption that you've got another day or another week or another Sunday. This may be the last day you have on this earth, the last opportunity you have to pray and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to avoid the quite hot wrath of God and eternal damnation in a hideous place called hell for eternity separated from God. God loves you. And by His grace, He has extended to you and me His, his gift of salvation. Purchased by the precious sinless blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, don't put that decision off. As we turn to Matthew chapter 14, where we'll pick up in just a moment, see, before I get to the theme of the message, I want to preface what I'm going to say with this statement. This is infinitely important. This is something. The primary and supreme method by which you and I come to know God and through which He is revealed to you and me preeminently is the eternally infallible, inherent, holy, living Word of God. Make no mistake about it. And what I want to take you this morning is that God reveals Himself in fact, I borrowed this, this morning's theme. I borrowed it from our good friend, Dr. Henry Blackaby. And those of you that have gone through experiencing God, the study, you'll remember the seventh of, the, of seven realities that he gave. In which he says, you come to know God through experience. You come to know God personally through experience. And I would add, the Word of God. And as, as you obey him, and as he accomplishes his divine purposes through us. God reveals himself most perfectly in his word, 
But I believe that what we'll see today in the scripture is that the Lord is still revealing himself to his people through our daily experiences if our spiritual eyes are open and our hearts are receptive. So the question that I would pose to you to ponder as you and I walk through this message together this morning is this, am I humbling and obediently allowing the Lord to reveal himself to me in my daily life experiences or or are you simply going on on the treadmill of life? Don't miss out on the golden nuggets of divine truth that God is wanting to reveal to you every day. God is always at work. He never takes a holiday. He's always at work around us. The problem is, are we willing to see how he's at work and glean from that? Now, back to the chapter 14. At this point in Jesus' ministry, knowing what he has known for eternity past, to everything that Jesus is doing, he's known it was going to happen. From eternity past, he told the foundation of the earth. Jesus has known this because he is God. He's on a mission to reveal to sinful humanity that their Messiah, their blessed, promised, and prophesied Messiah, is in their midst. He has come. And if we watch Jesus' ministry, you'll notice that he's beginning to incorporate more Gentiles. If you have a Bible with maps in it, then you'll notice at the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see the city of Capernaum. Jesus spent a lot of time in the region of Capernaum. And at this point in his ministry, you'll find references to Jesus crossing back and forth. He's saying he's got some fishermen to know the sea. He's going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. On one side, predominantly Jewish. On the other, more Gentiles. Jesus is beginning to say, my mission is not just to the Jews. Certainly the Jew first, as Paul advocated in Romans 1, but to the Gentile also. And so he's starting to incorporate more of the Gentiles into his ministry. And many of the things that you see beginning to happen in his ministry, you'll see that he's beginning to shift Matthew emphasizes this more than maybe other gospel writers. That his history of preaching is beginning to shift more from teaching the multitudes. Now he's beginning to narrow the focus of his teaching to his disciples. Why should that interest you and me? Because ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too are his disciples. Pay attention to the things that Jesus will be saying from this point on. He's speaking to his faithful few. Those who will be ready and waiting for him when he returns. He will help you to understand how you deal with life in his absence while you wait for him. He will help you now to understand how we live our lives as true followers of Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus is revealing things through experiences to those few twelve men, his apostles. They're very experiencing eye-opening, heart-throbbing experiences that will make them see that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not an average rabbi. He's more than a prophet. He is the blessed Messiah. He is the Son of God. 
And that's where we'll end the message this morning. So first of all, Jesus is demonstrating these things in his experiences with his disciples. For instance, first of all, and I'll refer to him this morning as Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is our Messiah. There is no other Messiah but Jesus Christ. Peter made that known in, in, I believe, in Matthew chapter 16 when he said in that great confession of faith, You are the Christ. The Messiah. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. But you can't say that with faith conviction that there's something flawed at your face, dear friend. Because He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The Messiah demonstrates first the purpose of His mission. Now, you've got to watch, Matthew doesn't just write chronologically. He writes thematically, and so time doesn't really matter to Matthew. He, he's like these Hollywood writers, you know, that do the movies. You're watching a movie, and you think you're watching present tense. Well, lo and behold, they got you in the future. Uh, those Star Wars movies just bigged my mind because I thought I was watching what was currently happening, but actually there's a future. Then they took me back to the past and brought me back up to the present. See, Matthew would have been a great Hollywood writer. And I'm just going to ask you to set aside verses 1 and 2 just for a moment because I want to take you back. That begin in, in chapter 14, verse 3. It's a flashback. Okay? How do I know that? Because when you and I were in chapter 4, you said, man, that was in 19... <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. But so when we were in chapter 4, you may recall that Jesus got word that John, the pastor's his cousin, his forerunner, had been arrested. Arrested by Herod the Great. Well, not Herod the Great, Herod's son, Harry Antipas. Because they had arrested. Well, let's look down. Matthew's taking that to see what all happened. Okay? Verse 3. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. You see, Herod Antipas was a wicked, immoral man. He was living and married to his brother's wife. But the matter to his nephew because, well, anyway, you have to do the genealogy. What a weird, twisted relationship. And, and John Baptist, being the preacher that he was, he didn't miss any words. He simply told the king, you're a sinner. You're living in sin. Adulterer? Okay, but anyway. So John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, John the Baptist, as a prophet. During Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. That's why John was told against dancing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a stretch. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might have. You see, Herodias' daughter, this seductive teenager, she got up and she didn't just dance to talk to alligator folks. So this was a very, very seductive dance. And, and Herod was probably very, very drunk. And he's making a, a ludicrous offer to her. So, she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head. Here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath, and because of those who sat with him at the table, he commanded it to be given to him. So he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl. Can you imagine teenage girl? Yeah. I don't know that is a gift, would you? Didn't somebody's hair bloody and oozing and eyeballs looking at you? Oh, class? Anyway, there goes your lunch. But, verse 11, and his hand was brought on the platter and given it to the girl and she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples, John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. 
What happened a while back? Now bring you up to verse 22. Present. At that time, heard the Tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus, and said to his servants, not to just hear the fear and apprehension in his voice, this is John the Baptist. He's he, he risen from the dead, and, and, and therefore these powers are at work in him. My goodness, John's alive again. It's not to be this, this Nazarene you're talking about. I said, preaching and then working miracles and casting out demons and doing all this. It's got to be God. How many nights did that wicked man lose sleep because of what he did? And it's coming back to home. You see, the Herods were known to be very unstable people. Jesus knew this. The next thing on Herod's agenda is, well, if he's a threat, I better get rid of him. So, so here's what I'm taking this. The Messiah demonstrates the focus of his mission. What was the focus of Jesus' mission? In John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to his disciples after he had encountered the woman at the well in Samaria, they're asking him about what did he have to eat, and he says, huh, my food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Man, I heard the purpose of Jesus was, Jesus said it in John chapter 5, verse 19. When he was answering a group of people, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son, son of man, cannot do anything except what he sees the Father do. And whatever he does, the Son does likewise. The purpose of Jesus' ministry was nothing, nothing but the will of the Father. And ladies and gentlemen, nothing would deter him from that, including a conflict with a wicked king. So he demonstrated the purpose of his mission to avoiding unnecessary conflict. Look at verse 13 now. And Jesus heard it. Some people are reading the scriptures and not do, looking at it in the context and, and truly studying it. We'll look at that and say, oh, it must be when John died. No. I'll just explain that. He's not reacting to John's death. He's known that for quite a while. What is he talking about? What does Matthew say? When he heard it. When he heard Herod had caught wind of Jesus' ministry and powers and was making the erroneous connection between him and John the Baptist. So when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to deserted place himself, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, what I want you to see is that a clash with a wicked king was not in the Father's plan. Was Jesus afraid of Herod Antipas? Yeah. John the Baptist wasn't afraid of Herod Antipas. I just told you that in the scripture. He called his hand. Publicly. Lost his head for it. But he still wasn't afraid. And certainly the Son of God was not afraid of a frail, wicked, evil king. Do you understand that just one divine thought from Jesus' mind would have dispatched a mighty angel from heaven? He would have, in, in the twist of a moment, he would have had Herod's head sitting at Jesus' foot, just like that. <laughs> Don't think that Jesus feared any man because he was the Son of Man. He was the Son of God. So, but, but the point is, he knew this wasn't a battle that was in God's plan, the Father's plan. 
So he took his disciples and moved to another region so as to avoid that unnecessary conflict. What does that say to you and I? We must choose our battles wisely in doing his will. So Jesus said this statement, and I'm sure y'all all remember when we were back in chapter 10. He said to his disciples, he said to you and I, be as wise or as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as dove. I'm getting a little southern country boy. I, I, I kind of paraphrase that just a little bit. Not, not that my version is anything better than the word of God. But here's how I would describe it. Be, be as wise as serpents, but not as dumb as dogs. Uh, now, I'm going to explain that just a second. See, I've observed snakes, I used to collect snakes when I was a kid, just fascinated by them. And the thing about snakes is, they will strike, but you watch them. They only usually strike for self-defense, if they're attacking the pole. Usually, if somebody threatens them, they're going to crawl up, and they're going to wait, and they will wait, and they will watch, and they will measure. They'll stick their turns out, they're measuring, they're calculating, everything about you, sizing you up, waiting, 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 and just at the precise moment, hello, you're dead as a doornail. Unless it was a garden snake or a green snake or something like that. That's the law. And that's true. Especially little dogs. Now, I, I'm looking at some of y'all that own these precious little puppies, and I understand you love them and they're precious too, but look, I'm a, and I'm a dog lover. Dogs are dumb sometimes. And they will just charge into a fight. I don't care for what. I know Jerry Flowers was talking about the time that they had some leftover bull oakland. And he said, the first flick, they threw it out, it was left over to the old hound dog, and the lead dog, he, he stopped it down because it was so slick, it went down the first, he looked around, thinking another dog was out, and so he jumped on them and started fighting. But <laughs> then I noticed that little dogs, especially are prone to fight, they're little gappers. I mean, chihuahua. Anybody have a chihuahua? I'll say for you. No, no. no. I know you love that little thing, okay? It's amazing. They'll throw. No, this is a big picture. They are the ones that will charge after a great game or a pit bull. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to say is, in situations of conflict, too wise, true. Don't be like a gaffer. God didn't call us to go out there and fight with everybody. We are in spiritual warfare, ladies and gentlemen. Make no mistake about that. The Word of God tells us we are in spiritual warfare. Be ready to defend the teachings of the tenets of the faith. But don't just play with anybody, and especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. Who must be focused? We also want you to see something else. In demonstrating the purpose of his mission, the Messiah also destroyed premature coronations. Now, I'm going to do something, I'm going to play with your mind a little bit, because I'm going to say, okay, beginning in verse 13, all the way down through, say, verse 21, Jesus was a great miracle. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Don't look. Quiet. Okay. Just put my word, but we're going to get to it. But he was a great miracle, an astounding miracle. In fact, you hold the place there and turn over to John's gospel. You see, and I put up on the screen, I hope you saw that, all, this, this is the only miracle of Jesus that is parallel in all four Gospels. That's worth taking note of. Matthew has it, Mark has it, Luke has it, John has it. Look at John, chapter 6. I want you to see something in John chapter 6. And, and so I, what I'm doing is I'm fast-forwarding the miracle to let you see the response of the people. For a reason. For a reason. Okay? All right. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Where are those men 
I'm in the Gospel of John. Is that where you all are? Somebody got Hezekiah? God bless your heart. Okay. Verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, and over this great miracle that we're going to look at, said, this is truly the prophet who is coming to the world. Now look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself. Jesus understood the thinking of the people. They were thinking, this, this guy keeps king for a day. I mean, not only is he working miracles of healing us, casting out demons, and we don't have to work anymore. He's a meal's on wheels. He'll feed us every day, like manna in the wilderness. We gotta make it king. You can't do any better than this. The Republicans don't have anybody like that. The Democrats don't have anybody like that. He's got to be the man. Make him king. Make him king. Jesus sensed this and quickly moved because that was not in the Father's plan. And he'll choose the king. And there will be a glorious coronation. He will be crowned with many crowns. But not at that time. Not the kind of king that they were thinking about. So you see, he was focused to make sure that everything he did. You see, I'm sure it was tempting. Yeah, yeah, everybody's chanting your name. You're the man. You're the number one. Everybody's rah, rah, Jesus. Rah, rah, Jesus. Yeah, if, if we're not careful, if Jesus weren't careful, he could have let his pride get in the way. He could have said, oh, they love me. Father, they, did you hear that? They love me. Let's do it now. So be careful. Because sometimes your own pride will get in the way. Sometimes your own ego will cause you to get a step ahead of God and trying to do something that maybe God never intends for you to do. Wait on the Lord. I need to move along. This is just something. I really need to move along. Listen, whatever you do, don't do it for the praise of people. I don't care how well you serve, I don't care how well you teach, how great you sing, how well you play an instrument, whatever you do, I don't care what you do. Do it not for the praise of people, do it for the glory of God. So the Messiah demonstrated the focus of his mission, but also I want you to see as we look further now, Messiah demonstrates the super, his supernatural provision. God will provide. The Lord will provide for you and me, brothers and sisters. Let's take a look now. Now you can go back to verse 13. And we'll look at the miracles. Some of you say, I know what it is. No, I'm just kidding. You probably already read the Bible. You know it from Genesis to Revelation. Okay. Verse 13 at the end of that verse. When the multitude heard it, they followed him. Jesus and the disciples are going as the church flies across the sea of Galilee to deserted place. All the people find out they, that where he's going, so they, it's not that far. They just dry foot around the, the, the shoreline. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. Town of Roxborough. Anybody ever been up there? <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah. Anyway, they're putting electricity out here one day. But, but this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, let's just stop there for just a second. Because, look at verse 15. I'm going to leave you hanging. Jesus said to them, they did not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, you see, the, the gospel writers give different perspectives and there's different things that we can glean and appreciate about their different takes on this miracle. 
And one of the things I want you to see is you will bump John's cross across the sea. And it didn't see that. Because you see, I believe even before that point, the subject of feeding the people had come up. I believe there had already been a little dialogue going on between Jesus and the disciples as the time was wearing on. In Matthew's Gospel, by the time Jesus makes this statement, it's late afternoon. It's in the first evening, if you will, the time from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m. Okay? I believe earlier, you'll see in John's Gospel, there was a little bit of discussion going on, and there was a reason for it. John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming to him. He said to Philip, Now, interesting. Twelve disciples who singled out Philip. Now, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and they're probably in the region of Bethsaida. It's a Philippine region, according to Gospel John earlier. How would he single out Philip? Well, if anybody knew what was available to feed the people, where the homeboys were, I mean, if you go to Roxburgh and you ask me, hey, we got a lot of people, we need to feed them. Sorry, here in Roxburgh, what should we do? I can pray. Is that how hard you think of feeding the people? Okay. All right. So he singled out Philip and said, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. So Philip, who are you going to depend on? Your resources or mine? He said this to test him. Alright? And um, he said, For he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. Six months' salary. Worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them may have a little. Now, I can understand Philip being a little bit concerned. Have you ever, any of you ever hosted you know, at the drop of a hat? About 20,000 people coming in? Just, I mean, all of a sudden. Just imagine your husband coming home. This is technology already. And say, honey, uh, Tonight, he's just coming for dinner. Well, all right. But, but, but he's going to bring about 20,000 people for dinner. Out comes the court 45. Boom! Okay. So <laughs> okay. it was a dilemma. It was a realistic dilemma. But what is Jesus doing? He, he's reminding his disciples right there that they need to face their own limitations in the face of overwhelming needs. They need to face that, listen, we're limited. There are things that the Lord will lead us to do and call us to do that will take us to the bottom of our resources, that will cause us to pull our pockets out from our uh, trousers and say, I can't do this. Listen, as, I, as you and I minister for the Lord and do His work, there will be times for sure that you will face intimidating needs. So great that you'll say, there's just no way that I can do this. There's no way that I can come up with this. No way, Lord, do I have the, the resources, talents, the ability, the knowledge, or whatever. And the Lord is thinking, here, I've got you where I need you. And I get you to the end of your bank account. You see, Philip was thinking, I don't have it. Judas surely ain't going to come off the cash. And even if I went around to all the people I know, six months' salary worth of bread, there's no way. 
And Jesus finally, as we move on, he reminds them of his divine resourcefulness. That's what he's wanted to put the feet and chapters upon. So back in this up now in verse 17. And they said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. Actually, those didn't even belong to the disciples. As you know, John's gospel tells us there was a little boy. Andrew went out amongst the crowd, this is Peter's brother, and said, Anybody got any food? No, I don't. I was thought Jesus was Peter. No, I was going to talk to Simon. Anybody got any food? No, I don't have. Anybody? Little boy says, I have my mom packed me a lunch. You know, got two sardines here, some scrawny body loads, five of them. And he says, uh, look at that child. <laughs> no, no. He says, no, I'm sure he told me, son, son, you realize Jesus can use this? Come on, come on, let's see what he can do. So that's where the bread and the fish came from, okay? How many of y'all knew that? No! No, he's a little boy heads and five. I know you did. I'm giving you a whole lot more credit, okay? Alright, so we know that the, or even a little boy, Jesus used a little boy to work the miracle. So the disciples haven't provided not. Okay? Now, as we go, as we go further, I'm probably making you a little hungry, especially if you're going to Long John Silver for lunch. Okay, so you just hang in there with me. He said, bring him here to me. Then he demanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two sticks, and he looked it up to heaven. Folks, that's really important. Because Jesus is teaching you and I something very important. When we're going to do God's work, you better have your eyes on God. You see, Jesus is even saying to the disciples, boy, it's not me. What you're about to see is coming from above. I'm an instrument of my Father. What you're going to see is my Father at work. Now watch. Say, pray, ask the blessing. Y'all feel ask the blessing before you eat? Good. Good. You might take you to go. But you know, have you ever been in a, in a restaurant and just sit there asking a quick blessing? When I was working with the youth, I, I had what I call the fast food blessing. If you can't pay a long extended blessing on food at, at McDonald's, you look over at one of the youth and half the fish fries are gone. Ooh, I, I promise them, I said, look, I'm going to pray that it's going to be a fast food blessing. But, but, listen, just acknowledge. Just acknowledge that Jesus did. It just comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of life. Okay, that's another sermon at another time. You look up heaven, bless it. The Lord, bless in the context, he, he praised God. I don't know what would happen at that city restaurant or outback if I just jumped up from the table and they thought that big old steak out there. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, God. You feel so wonderful and awesome. They'd probably say, sir, could you, could we make that a take out? <laughs> Come on, come on, Okay, all right. And so he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude, so they all ate and were filled. They got even hungry. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Twelve one for each disciple. And then there was leftovers from Mars. I mean, Jesus doesn't do anything fancy, who does it abundantly? Abundantly. And that's what he wants his, his disciples then to see. That listen, through this miracle of multiplication, motivated by compassion. Do you understand when Jesus looked out at the crowd, he was moved. He wasn't, he wasn't like many Baptists. Oh, good places. Would you look at that? What do they think we are? Bread basket? Only we put the feet in the world? 
I mean, well, I don't know, more offers, more offers. Oh, no, Jesus looks out on the multitude of people who are not only physically hungry, but more importantly, spiritually hungry. He healed them. They were hurting. He healed them. And then he fed them. Pay attention to it. And what he's saying to something to us there. But what Jesus did was motivated not by self-centered desire to entertain people. Jesus wasn't a, a dog and pony magic show. He was doing everything he did to give glory to God the Father. And so he's drawn attention to the fact of God's divine resourcefulness. And Jesus can work miraculously through our new birth. I want you to understand that, ladies and gentlemen. He is never dependent. You understand? He's never dependent on what you can give. He's never dependent upon what you can do. You understand? He's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, eternal, sovereign. He's doing anything you want to do. It's a privilege for you to give. It's an honor for you to be able to serve. And you know what? I believe the less we actually have to offer to the Lord humbly, we can do more with. We can take out a little bit of talent, resources, and abilities, and, and knowledge, and he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could possibly ask or even think according to the power, his power, that works in us. Ephesians 3.20. You know, one of the things that you and I have over the disciples then? Conviction. They didn't have the Gospels written out. They didn't have the teachings of their circles of Paul and Peter, James, and... They didn't have Philippians 4.19 that says, when Paul says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory according to Christ Jesus. They didn't have the benefit of that. Do what I do. It's a promise to God. I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. Our economy may be in trouble, but not his. Not his. You'll never worry. have to worry about God coming up short. There's no inflation in heaven. God owns everything. He can rearrange resources at the drop of a hat. Whatever he wants to do, I promise you, he will provide it. If you're seeking to do something in your life, if God leads, leads you to do it, He's going to supply. If He's leading you to do something to minister to somebody else, He's going to supply. Don't get this erroneous notion that somehow God depends upon what you've got, what you can do. All you've got to do is be humble before Him and give Him what you have. And say, use me, Lord. Like that old song, little is much. But God is in it. Amen? All right, I need to hurry up and see. Some of you are getting hungry talking about this feeding of the 5,000. Our Lord has the Messiah demonstrated the purpose of his mission. He demonstrated his supernatural provision. But this is really good. Really good. He demonstrated his divine presence and power. As we move further, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus gave his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sends the multitudes away. Now, I'll just explain to you why. Jesus is so urgent. I mean, we're hearing his disciples. I can imagine Peter and James and John and all the disciples, Matthew and all, they're, they're liking this glory. Hey, Lord, listen, the people love you. They want to make you king. Let's stay here. Let's build a castle. Hey, this is it. Jesus is all my goodness. Get in the boat, boys. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. Hey, Andrew, Scott, John, Matthew, get in the boat. I'll see you on the other side. Let me get them out of there. He stood behind. He dispersed the crowd in what a little mountain the Bible says. 
in verse 23 of the psalm. And when Lydia came to come, she was alone there. She wanted to be alone. She needed to be alone. But the Father, talking to God the Father, getting his next order, at this time, make sure he was on track. Now, don't move off, back out on the sea of Galilee, the disciples in the boat. But when the boat is in the middle of the sea, now look at the conditions, ladies and gentlemen. In the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the waves were contrary. I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm not one of those people who like to be in a boat when it's like, you know, when some spots are in front of the they weren't just rolling waves. The Bible didn't tell you, these are, did y'all ever see the storm, the, the movie Perfect Storm? Good. Gracious alive. That's what was happening. It was a God stirred up perfect storm. I mean, the waves were taking that little boat with the tub to stop and say, hey, go for a, go for a long one. Boom! Throwing them the next wave, catching them. Hey, go, go down. I got this one. Boom! the little boat like it was a ping pong ball. Now, I may be taking a few liberties here, but I want you to see this is a bad, bad situation. Well, the Messiah wants to do, demonstrate something to his disciples, and I believe to you and me. Wherever the people may be, he will be with them. One of the greatest promises in the Word of God, Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the world. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus said in Hebrews 13, he said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. He said his disciples learned something very important about his messiahship, his lordship, his godship, if you will. He is God. And the disciples experienced his presence in an unreachable place. Go back to verse 24. The boat was in the, the middle of the sea. Time to go to sea, there was probably about three to four miles away from the shore. The person you don't want to be in a terrible windstorm at sea, tossed by the waves, is in the middle of the sea, in the dark of the night. That's what it was. It wasn't accidental though, it was providential. Jesus knew exactly where they were. Why did he put them there? He's talking about seasoned fishermen like James and John and Andrew and Peter. Look, he took them there, and even those guys, those seasoned fishermen said, Man, we are in deep yogurt. That's the way they were saying that. This is a crisis. Now, you know what's interesting? Because earlier in chapter 8, do you remember? This is our first time that the disciples were at sea in the terrible storm. In chapter 8, they were in the terrible storm at sea, but that sea was in the lake. Sleeping like a baby. Babies striking over the bed, wind blowing, putting the boat down to go under, and then, you know, they're, they're panicking, and Jesus is just. I, I don't know if you saw it or not, so that's not scriptural, but you get calm. Jesus is at sea. Calm, peaceful. It's like one old African-American American preacher put it one time. He said, why was Jesus so calm and sleeping in the back of the boat? He said, ladies and gentlemen, there ain't enough water in the ocean to drown the Son of God. Because the disciples should have known if Jesus ain't going down, we ain't going down. You're okay. That's the thing. That's the thing. Okay, but in this situation, he's not in the boat. 
Is that what it's for? Three or four miles away? They're desperately leading the way. And so here they are. They're running out of strength. They're running out of confidence. They're running out of hope. But there's now in the fourth watch. This is very late, early in the morning, if you will, going on towards three in the morning, four in the morning. Now the woman in the fourth watch is in verse 25. And it was just tired. They've been roaring against the wind all night. Jesus can't see them. That's another thing. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they said, Oh, look, there's Jesus. That's how I'm in. There's this figure walking on the water in the midst of a terrible storm. And if, if what they were thinking wasn't bad enough, they said, Oh, Jesus, it's a ghost. We are in this yoga. And he cried out with fear. These grown men, grown men, just enjoy the word of God. It's written for us to enjoy. It's going to be boring, but it's not. Verse twenty-seven. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, "Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid." And the half of us, impetuous and persistent. And then one of them answered and said, "What?" If it is you, I didn't call him teacher. Lord, if it is you, command me, command me to come to you on the water. And so come, come, baby, Lord of Christ. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Hallelujah. You go, Peter. You go, Simon. All right. And go out to Jesus. God, you're done. And when he saw that, that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and began to sink, and he cried out, saying, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, called him up, and said to him, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, a lot of people rag on old Peter and say, You're a gentle Peter, you just have to take that, you could have been out there dancing on the water. Old Peter lost his faith in faith. Peter was the only one who got out of the bank. I'm giving credit! I was my head to this. Listen, do you understand that if God had, if Jesus had stuck into the wind, and those disciples were out there fighting away, if Jesus, and he could have, if he would simply called their names, John, John, Andrew, James, Peter, all the guys, Matthew, listen, I'm waiting on the shore, it's nice and dry here, just step out of the boat, on the water, and the water will sustain, it'll hold you up, you come on to me. Now, you realize that had Jesus spoken to them, they, all of them, all twelve of them could have walked three miles on the water all the way back to shore. Can I believe that? I do. I believe that. If Jesus willed it. But the fact is, Jesus was demonstrating that he will be with us. And let me tell you something. We can experience the Lord wherever we need him. I'm going to go back and read it, but here, Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm, and it tells us that there is nowhere that you could go, not to the heights of the heavens, not to the depths of Sheol, nowhere, the depths of the ocean, to the heights of the mountains, there's nowhere, there's nowhere you can go if you will be out of the presence of the Lord. That's a comforting reality. And that's what the Messiah was wanting the people to see. Here it goes, we'll move on. Whatever his people encounter, who can deliver them? And when they got in, when they, Peter and Jesus, got into the boat, what happened? They stopped, stands over, and they were thoughtful. Now, they were immediately where they took down. And then they were thoughtful. Whatever he thinks in life, he can deliver us. That doesn't mean Jesus is going to take us out of all the storms of our life. 
That doesn't mean he's going to rescue us from all the trials and crises and tragedies that happen in our life. But he can. If he chooses to, he can. That's what he wanted his disciples to see. And so the disciples witnessed his power, and look how they responded. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus had calmed the sea before, but there they simply, they simply asked, What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this that can calm the sea? Well, now, now they see this is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is God. We today worship Him because of what we know by faith. What do we know by faith? In closing, I'd like to share this. In Romans chapter 8, this is what the Word of God This one of many promises to you and me. We know this by faith, and we can worship Him. Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, 30, oh, chapter 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There, listen, I have stood by the, the bedside of dear saints, moments from going on into glory. And shared that passage of Scripture just to give, show up their faith and to remind them, listen, nothing, not your sickness, not your inability, your disability, listen, not even death will separate you from the Lord. He was with you and He will be with you always. You can worship Him because truly He is the Messiah. I won't prolong our time, I know it's a little late, but I want to just put you very briefly and very confidently. Because all through the time that God was leading me in preparation for this message, I felt like not only was there a message to believers in general, but I believe that there's a message that God is wanting Christians to hear. I realize, and I'm saying this in the heart, Listen carefully. I realize that we are and have been and we will be going through a time of transition. Changes come into the life and the body of Christ to fulfill the purpose of God. I understand that sometimes change and transition can be unsettling, ladies and gentlemen. I understand that. And I understand that sometimes it creates a, a degree of unsettledness and insecurity in some people. It happens. And in the worst case scenario, sometimes people will feel so unsettled that maybe they begin to feel tension because of, you know, I, maybe now's the time that I should leave. Maybe now's the time. And you know as well as I do, we've lost two dear Christians. But here's what I feel like God is wanting me to say to you. Yes, we are going through some transition times, some changes, and it will involve change, no doubt, as we prepare ourselves to be a stronger, more effective church, to do 21st century ministry to people out there who don't even know Jesus Christ, who've never brought in the door of Christ, uh, of a church, who are very ungodly in their lifestyle, but we have a responsibility to reach them with the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus. 
And I believe that though this may, con- may not constitute a form, as the disciples experienced, it is a kind of enslavement. But I want you to know something from the heart of your pastor, and I really believe with all conviction from the Word of God. It's not a reason for you and me to leave the fellowship. Let me just say something here. There's not a one of us who hasn't gone through times of being disappointed. There's not a one of us who hasn't been frustrated. There's not one of us at some point that probably hasn't been disillusioned with the church. Understand the church is made up of sinners saved by grace who are now saints but they're not perfect. Begin with the pastor. The only reason the scripture allows well, first of all, the only two practical reasons that a Christian would leave the church is number one, practically, if God led you to go to another part of the state or region where it is not geographically feasible for you to continue to be actively involved in the activity of the church, I really believe that it's, you know, certainly, it's just because you need to go. How to support and endorse that. When God calls you to a specific ministry, I use the case of Jerry and Kay Moore, Dear, dear friends of this church, God calls from Cornerstone to Robin Hood Road where Baptist Church where they are serving actively in ministry and blessing people and advancing the kingdom of God in music and children's ministry. And if God chooses to take a segment of our congregation and, and start a new church, it may be. My dear Cornerstone was a church plan for the only theological reason that you will have the blessings of God to leave a body of Christ theologically is that the church pastor the church and goes to preach and preach unbiblical heresy. If you ever hear me advocating any other gospel than the gospel of salvation through grace by faith and that alone that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father and through His shed blood. If you ever hear me or any preacher advocating God, yes, you do get out of church. If you ever hear me advocate that Jesus Christ was not truly divine, that He was not virgin born, you run. You run and don't look back. But anything, dear brothers, if you, if, 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 if you ever want to be in the will of God, this is the only, that is the only scripture God blessed reason. So what does that say? It's the relationship that church members have with the body of Christ is sacred. It's a covenant relationship, just like a marriage. A John came home after work one day and said, Charles, I'm so frustrated with you, I'm just a reason with our marriage, but I'm, I'm leaving. You know, I would say, oh gosh, I'm going to miss you, honey. And God bless you. <laughs> Hey, hey, said, wait, wait a minute, dear. We promised we would be together to death separate from us. Listen, we gotta sit down. Let's talk about your frustration. Let's talk about your discipline. Let's work it out. We can work it out. The Lord God hates. And leaving the church for any other reason than put the scripture support, God hates. It's a form of spiritual divorce. I hope you understand that. Let's be ladies contemplating this. I can't stand there and hold you by the ankles and keep you from leaving. No, and I won't. That's between you and God. 
How would be much of a pastor to walk that guy and oddly watch church members walk directly and, and, and diagnostically opposed to the will of God? Understand that. Yes, we are going through a time change and transition. It's a time when we need to be communicating with each other. It's a time when we need to be praying for one another. And listen, I want you to know, if there's something that disappoints you about me, or this church, or the ministry, or frustrates you, or disillusions you, please call me. Call me. I don't care what time of day or night it is. I don't care how busy my schedule is. I will make time to come to you, sit with you in your living room. We'll walk through the Word of God. We'll pour over the Word of God. We will pray fervently. We can work it out. We need you because God brought you to us for a purpose. And brothers and sisters, sisters, brothers and sisters, make a point. You need us. Let's pray. Father, oh, Heavenly Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our shortcomings. Cleanse us where we need to be cleansed. We're not perfect, Lord. There's not a person in this room that hasn't probably disappointed you this week. We're constantly in need of coming before you to confess our sins. Lord, this is not a perfect church by no stretch of the imagination, nor is the pastor perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We all make mistakes. I pray, Lord, for this body. I pray for every member. Every member is important and significant to the life of this church. May we, Heavenly Father, walk together in unity and in love and may we be a good witness to the world around us of what the powerful love of Christ can do to unite a body in one mind, in one spirit, under the headship of Jesus Christ. But I pray your blessings upon everybody here today. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, oh God, would you speak to their heart, I pray. And we thank you for what you're going to do as a result. By hearing this message today, help us to know you even better, to love you more, and to serve you greater, and Lord, to bring more glory to you. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name, and the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed.